As we begin our time in God's Word together today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the blessings of this day, grateful for the worship that we've already enjoyed. And as we come to this time of study in your Word, Lord, may you bless uh, both the one who preaches and the one who hears, that we both may be built up and sent out from this place, ready to live in the newness of resurrection and in the hope that, of the resurrection to come. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Make sure my mic is on. Yep, it's on now. Oh, I thought I sounded a little low there to start with. Uh, well, uh, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 28 together as we come to uh, what is the pinnacle of the works of Jesus that we find in the Apostles' Creed. We've been studying through this ancient confession of faith known as the Apostles' Creed, and we've been taking it clause by clause, seeing the different attributes and works of the different persons of the Trinity, and we've been on a long section in the works of the Son and the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and He's Lord and He is uh, is fully God and fully man and that He suffered uh, for our sins, that He faced the crucifixion, that He died as a substitution for our sins, as a sacrifice for our sins. And now we come, as I said, to the pinnacle of that work of Jesus, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we confess, on the third day He rose again from the dead. So we're, as we have done the whole time that we've been in this little mini-series, uh, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together. If you have your bulletin, you'll look at the centerfold of your bulletin. You'll find there the Apostles' Creed. And so let's recite that together and commit it to memory as we've been uh, uh, trying to do throughout this study. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So as we confess that as our, our belief in who Jesus is and who God is, I have another confession to make. It's a confession of another sort that I need to make. The deacons are looking at me funny when I say that. <laughs> Scott's getting nervous. Scott's getting nervous. Uh, but uh, Scott's thinking, I'm going to have to finish this sermon out. Um, <laughs> but uh, I have a confession to make in that even as a Baptist pastor, I have watched soap operas. I'll just go ahead and confess it now. I have watched soap operas. And I blame this moral lapse primarily on my wife who introduced, them, introduced me to Days of Our Lives when we were at, at Auburn in college. Uh, we were married early, married at 20, and, and uh, we lived in a trailer at Auburn. I had three channels, 
and, uh, and one of those three channels was NBC, and we had lunch together between classes. We had lunch together every day, and the only thing we really could watch besides Judge Judy was, was um, Days of Our Lives, and so we watched Days of Our Lives together every, every weekday, and I became accustomed to the long storyline of Days of Our Lives because every storyline of Days of Our Lives is just a regurgitation of the last storyline of Days of Our Lives, if you've ever watched it. And one of the common themes in a soap opera is that characters die and come back with regularity. So Stefano will kill John, and then 10 years later, John will come back onto the show because actually Stefano didn't kill John. He faked his death, and then he became a clandestine agent for Stefano while Marlena, the love of his life, went on with her life and had children by another man. And oh, the drama that ensues as a result of that. You can only imagine. Whether it's a soap opera or a superhero movie or sports comes back, comebacks, we love a good resurrection story. We cannot imagine that our heroes would die. In fact, one of the annoyances that my wife has with, has with the superhero movies of our day is that nobody ever actually dies. They all end up coming back after, after the last movie. I think this, though, in some way reflects something about our own desire for eternal life. We can't imagine we can't bear the thought of our own story ending. Life is too precious. The love that we share with others is too meaningful. The great work that we put forward in this world to build something and to make a better world and to help society and to uh, continue the next generation, it, it has to live on. And if the, if the secular materialist, if the atheist is right, then our lives mean nothing. We are just a collection of cells organized by natural selection and chance and eons of time to exist in human bodies. The morality and emotions and societal structures we all have and believe are innate and important, they're just products of evolution and hormones. They don't mean anything. They don't accomplish anything. And as I say that, I hope that you kind of wince at the thought of it. Because to be human is to long for the eternal. is to long for that which lasts. As Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart. We long for eternity because we were made for it. Yet when we observe the ways of this world, we might feel like we're forced to agree with the secular humanist. We long for eternity, and yet our bodies slowly age. We have aches and pains and suffer from diseases and cancers and wrestle with chronic disorders. And then when all of that suffering is done, when we've suffered long enough, we die and our family buries us in the ground, and our bodies decay to dust. This hope for eternity seems to be more akin to wishful thinking. But then we hear of a teacher named Jesus of Nazareth. This teacher comes preaching the kingdom of God, where the poor in spirit are blessed and the meek inherit the earth. And he does, doesn't just 
teach about the kingdom, but he gives us glimpses of it. He heals the blind and he uh, and he heals the lame and the diseased and he even raises people from the dead. We might think at the height of his ministry that we finally have a reason to hope for eternity. Then the religious leaders and the Roman authorities hastily try Jesus and they condemn him for blasphemy and treason. And this hopeful teacher who healed many is now nailed to the cross and he suffocates to death. What would the life of Jesus mean without the resurrection? What, what would it mean for our salvation if he had died on the cross and his body were still in the tomb today? This morning, I want you to see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undeniable and essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And so we confess on the third day he rose again from the dead. Amen. And to see that, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 28 together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 28. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at, a time, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So, as we consider this passage this morning, I want you to see three points about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that the resurrection is paramount, it is proof, and it is a promise. So the resurrection is paramount, it is proof, and it is a promise. So first, in verses 1 through 11, we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is paramount. Paul begins this chapter of his letter by reiterating the essentials of the gospel that he delivered to the Corinthian church. Now, most scholars believe that verses 3 through 6 are actually a sort of early creed that the church would have memorized. Notice the importance that Paul places on the beliefs of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Understand that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the gospel message. The rest of the good news of the gospel hangs on this fact that the tomb is empty because Jesus Christ is alive. If you pull that linchpin out, the whole of the gospel message falls apart. You must believe this to be saved. In fact, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that very thing. Paul says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are two expressions of faith given in this verse. Confession in the Lordship of Jesus and belief that he rose again from the dead. Now, of course, confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing that he raised from the dead includes is kind of shorthand for all of these other things that we've been talking about in the Apostles Creed. But it's important that Paul boils all of the doctrines of the church, all of the beliefs that we have down into a single confession. Jesus is Lord and he raised from the dead. All of the rest of it is true because that is true. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that he was born of a virgin. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that he is the son of God. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that his sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we believe all of what scripture teaches. Second, in verses 12 through 19, we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof. Paul wrote this section of his letter because there had arisen a, a heresy in the church known as the Gnostics. And we've already talked about the fact that the Gnostics denied that 
the, uh, the material world was good. They believed that the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. And so part of that denial, part of the denial of the Gnostics was to deny the resurrection of the body. And you'll notice in these verses, Paul says, there are some of you who are saying that the resurrection of the body will not happen. And so to combat that belief, Paul asked, how, how then is Jesus raised from the dead? He says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised from the dead. If we say that the material world is evil and therefore bodies cannot be raised and perfected, then we deny even that Jesus could have been raised from the dead because Jesus was fully man, as we've already talked about. And then Paul makes the most striking claim in verses 17 and 19. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So did you catch that? If Jesus has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. If Jesus died, was buried, and rotted in the ground, just like every other human who has ever lived, it means that he was just merely a man. He was nothing special. There was nothing to see here. He was just a false prophet, a charlatan, a liar, or a lunatic. And if he isn't raised, then it means our faith is meaningless. Our pursuit of holiness, our commitment to the way of Christ, our willingness to face persecution, it's all useless and we are to be pitied more than any other group of people. If Jesus has not raised from the dead, then what are you doing here? What are you doing? Are you going through the motions because you think, well, it'll just, it just makes a better life. It makes for a better life that I live as a Christian. Are you going through the motions because that's what mama did and what daddy did and so I want to hold on to those traditions because that's what we've always done and that's what makes for a good society? I don't understand the liberal, liberal Christian position that denies the resurrection of God and still asks people to stay committed to church because it makes no sense. As Paul says here, if Christ has not been risen, then we are stupid. We are fools. We are to be pitied as those who don't have any sense because Jesus Christ's resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. It holds everything together and it is the reason that we have hope today. But Jesus has been risen. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves three things. First... It proves that he is the son of God and therefore what he teaches is trustworthy. Only the son of God, only the son of God could rise again from the dead. So we can believe what he tells us because he has risen. Second, it proves the truthfulness of the gospel message. I want you to think about this and you can go check me on this. But every single sermon in the New Testament 
hangs on the claim of the resurrection. From Acts chapter 2 all the way to the end of the book of Acts, in every time that the gospel is presented in a sermon in the New Testament, it all ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to the Greek philosophers who have no reference to the Bible, and he tells them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he ends it by saying this. He says, And God has proven this by raising His Son from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the anchor of our evangelism. When you are telling others about Jesus, don't be distracted by the arguments over the age of the earth or the flood or the splitting of the Red Sea. Bet all of your marbles on the empty tomb. Bet everything that you have, the whole house, put it all on the table, push it all to the middle and say it all comes down to this. You can go to Jerusalem today You can find the tomb of Jesus. And guess what? There ain't a body there. And there hasn't been for over 2,000 years because Jesus has risen. And not only has He risen, not only is there an empty tomb, but we have 12 men who otherwise would have been considered lunatics, would have been considered maniacs, because at the very threat of horrible death, They went to persecution and death because of the claim that they had seen the resurrected Christ. As Paul says at the very beginning of this chapter, he says that he appeared at one point to 500 people at at the same time. And he says, notice he says in that verse that many of them are still alive. Now, why does he say that? He says that because he's telling the Corinthians, go ask them. If you don't believe me, Go ask them. And so we have the testimony of faithful witnesses throughout the church, apostles, disciples, women who went to the tomb. We have that faithful witness who tell us that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen, and it proves that our, our, what the gospel says is true. If Christ has been risen, then the gospel is true. Lastly, Jesus' resurrection proves that our sins are forgiven. And praise God, our sins are forgiven today because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty, it means that Jesus' sacrifice is accepted. If the tomb is empty, it means that the sinless substitute for our sins has been made and God has accepted that sacrifice. And that leads me to my last point, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a promise. In verses 20 through 28, Paul shows us how the resurrection of Christ is a promise of our own resurrection. In verse 20, he says that Jesus has been raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, in modern, industrial, in modern industrial farming, we don't really have first fruits anymore because we've modified the crops so that they've been designed to all mature at the same time because you want to be able to run the combine through it and pick up the corn and it all be ripe at the same time. But with heirloom crops, 
you will have what the Bible calls first fruits, which is the fruit that matures earlier than the rest of the crop. So if you're raising heirloom tomatoes like brandywine or whatever it is that you like to raise, there will be a few tomatoes that ripen before all the other tomatoes do. And that first fruit serves as an indication of several things. First of all, have you done what you were supposed to do? Is the soil good? Is the, uh, did you keep the pest away and all of that kind of stuff? And it also tells you what kind of harvest you can expect. So if the first fruit is poor, then the rest of the crop will probably be poor. As my grandfather would do every year, my, my dad would get so irritated because my grandfather planted, uh, planted a garden every year behind our house. And so every year his peas would come up sparse and uh, he, because the first few peas that he got weren't that great, he would just plow all the peas under and plant them all over again. How many of y'all do that? Bill, you do that, don't you? No. Oh, <laughs> no pointing fingers now. Uh, but he would, just, he would just plow them all under and start all over again because I guess Granddaddy believed in the first fruits. He believed, you know, you, if you didn't have good peas, you might as well start over. But if the, if the first fruits are beautiful and healthy, then the rest will probably be two. So Paul says that Jesus is the first fruit from the dead. If Jesus' body is restored and made perfect, then guess what? Ours will be too. If Jesus' body is made eternal so that he can dwell with God forever, then guess what? Ours will be too. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our own salvation. It is a promise that God is not done with this world, that he will redeem this world. Now, you might be thinking, Brother Nathan, I know I have people in this graveyard out here that have been gone for years. I have people in my lineage that have been dead for centuries. How is it that Jesus Christ is going to redeem that body when many of them quite literally have returned to dust. I don't know. But I do know that my God created this world in six days. Amen. I do know that my God flooded the earth in judgment. I do know that my God parted the Red Sea. I do know that my God uh, defeated the enemies uh, of Israel. And I do know that my God raised Jesus from the dead. And if my God can do those things, then guess what? A little bit of dust can be transformed too. You see, your salvation, while it is guaranteed, it is not complete. We know it's not complete because even though we trust in Jesus Christ, we still die. But we have a sure hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that our aging body is not the end of our story. We have a sure hope that our pains and suffering are not the end of our story. We have a sure hope that the cancer diagnosis, the chronic disease, the terminal illness is not the end of our story. We have a sure hope that death is not the end of our story. Amen. Why do we have this sure hope? Because Jesus was crucified, dead, 
and buried. And church, what? On the third day, He rose again from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we have salvation in His name because He is not dead, but He is alive. And we should not look for Him among the dead, but among the living. And so, Lord, we come to ask that You would empower us by that same resurrection power to live in faithfulness for Him, to live in hopefulness of the resurrection to come. May we be found like that, that the five brides that kept their lamp lit, waiting on the resurrection. May we be found faithful because we trust that His resurrection is a first fruits of the resurrection that is to come. I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.